Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As the church gathers together in the Lord's house this week, it is year C, the eighth Sunday after the Epiphany, and our texts are going to be the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Optionally, your pastor can choose to also include verses 8 to 15. The epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 to 52. But again, the pastor has the option of adding on verses 53 through 58. And lastly, the gospel from Luke chapter 6, verse 39 to 49. And this is going to be the final Sunday of the season of Epiphany before we would then have the transfiguration of our Lord, Ash Wednesday, moving into the season of Lent in preparation for Holy Week and Easter. So Epiphany, the revealing of God's good news, the gospel, Christ's salvation for the world, to the world. Here's our text. We jump in, Jeremiah 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Jeremiah is called to be the prophet of the Lord to his people, the southern kingdom of Judah, in the seventh, late seventh, and into the 6th century B.C., that is, the 600s, and then into the 500s. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been crushed by Assyria, well, uh, at least 100 years earlier, as that happened in 722 B.C. Jeremiah will live to see the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, the sending of God's people into Babylon for their 70 years of exile, He himself won't go that way. He'll go to Egypt with a remnant, a small group of Jews who traditionally the church holds end up killing the prophet for speaking the Lord's word. So he has a very rough ministry in which the people never seem willing to hear his word with minor exceptions, including the king Zedekiah. That's a strange relationship. So here... God speaks to Jeremiah, gives him the word to proclaim, and it's a word of repentance. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house. That would refer to the temple in Jerusalem, the place where the Israelites are supposed to go, bringing their sacrifices to God, described in the early chapters of the book of Leviticus. It's the place where his throne sits, where he sits enthroned in the midst of his people. God's promises, his dwelling. Even the very place where he has put his name, as we will see in the extra portion of text today. The gate. The gate is the entrance. The way in. And so as you think of the temple, surrounded by its courtyards, the gates would be the way that you then enter into those courtyards. There are multiple gates. It's not specified which gate here. 
but Jeremiah speaking to the people, calling them to hear God's word. He has tried in the book to refrain from preaching God's word. That did not go well for him. The word bubbled up inside him. The spirit would not let him hold it in, and he preached some more. So here, he does as the Lord gives him to do. He's going to speak the word God gives him to the people. We don't actually see that. We just continue to see the word the Lord encourages him, demands him, to proclaim. So what is that word? Which is given first to all the men, verse 2, of Judah who would enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Anyone who claims to be of God's people. They are to hear and again repent. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. We lose a lot in that little English turn. In English it just reads thus says the Lord of hosts. The word Lord there though in all capital letters is the divine name first given in Exodus chapter 3. It's where we see the meaning of the name. As God calls himself Ehweh, I am, and he tells us to call him Yahweh, he is. And so it's one of the most common words throughout the entire Old Testament. And then, hosts. And we've simply lost this one over generations of time in English as it has shifted in meaning. We think of a host, we think of someone hosting a party. But the word means armies in earlier English. This is Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel. He is calling his people not to a party, but to repentance. The angel armies of God, even the Israelite people themselves, are referred to as the armies of the Lord at points. Amend your ways. And your deeds, I will let you dwell in this place. As we look later in the text, verse 7 specifically, we will see what this place refers to. It is not the temple, it is not Jerusalem, but it is the promised land. At least that part of it that would remain already, as, again, Assyria has destroyed the northern section. So God calls them to repent. And if they do, he will let them continue to live where they live. If they don't, that's again the threat here of his armies, that the Lord has the angel armies at his beck and call, but also truly any earthly army as it's going to be the Babylonian army he'll make use of to accomplish his judgment against Judah. The Lord will call armies against them and he will remove them from the place. That's the opposite. Verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. That phrasing might seem a little odd. They were superstitiously, if we want to phrase it that way, believing that simply because the temple was there, they would be okay. It had become to them almost like the lucky rabbit's foot that as long as you have that on you, your day will go well. It was no longer about Yahweh being their king. 
and they his people. It was no longer about Yahweh dwelling in their midst and them living in the presence of the holy God. It was, we're going to live however we want, and we're okay because the temple's here. They care not for God. They care not for the faith and the life he has called them to. They want to do what they want to do, and they think that they're okay. They have become hardened in their ways. So the Lord, calling them here to repent. Our second paragraph, and if your pastor is choosing the short reading, the end of our Old Testament reading, verses 5 to 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Truly amend. Don't just put up a, f- a front, a face, and pretend, but actually turn. That's what the word repent that we use so often means. It means to turn away from something. Turn away from your sins. Turn to God. To amend is to change. Again, not a pretending, but an actual change. So what are they to change? (laughs) All their ways and their deeds. The Lord gets a little more specific here. But this is our confession as Christians today. We don't just search our hearts and our minds and think of one or two sins we've committed against the Lord, we throw ourselves down at the foot of the cross. We throw ourselves down in humility before our King Jesus Christ, and we ask for him, we beg for him to forgive me, forgive all of me, for I'm a sinner, and Jesus forgives. Thanks be to God. The Lord is offering that forgiveness here to them. He's offering them mercy. So he expands on what he means by amend your ways and your deeds if you truly execute justice one with another. Justice. Doing what is right. Doing what is good and holy and godly. Stop wronging one another. Don't accept bribes. Those sorts of things. Caring for, is the next part here, those who cannot help themselves. So we have the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The three groups in the Old Testament that are frequently separated out in a section like this to be cared for by all of the people of God. The sojourner is the foreigner, the person who does not have a home, a place to call his own, but he is just passing through, or he's passed through, but he's hanging around for a long time. The Lord, when he first gives instructions about the sojourner earlier in the Pentateuch, will instruct them to care for the sojourner because they themselves were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So they know what it's like. 
the fatherless, referring to orphans, but not just orphans here, uh, even the one who would be the son of or the daughter of a widow, which is the next group. Fathers were the providers, the head of the household. He brought in the income necessary to provide daily bread. So if a child has lost his dad, it will be more difficult for this child to be cared for, to be fed, to be clothed, to be homed, housed. And likewise, then the widow is here as well. She would be in the same situation as she no longer has the means by which to provide for herself. And so the community is to come around that family, to come alongside of them, support them, encourage them. We look at this extremely different today. But single moms end up in perhaps maybe the largest group that lives under the poverty line within our culture. But we have this mentality in the American society that everybody has to do it their own. You can't help each other. People don't even want help anymore, oftentimes. But who's to say that the empty nesting couple that has a home with way more space than they need can't bring a family like this into the home? And I know we get all caught up about the money side of things and we start talking about that, but why? Why not just let a family live together with another family, share a roof, love each other? Hospitality is a increasingly lost art, but it is one of the gifts of the Christian described in the New Testament. Anyway, uh, so as we keep going in verse 6, shedding innocent blood in this place would be a reference that would appear to, again, the whole of the promised land, not just to Jerusalem, not just to the temple. So killing for no reason. Fifth commandment, you shall not murder. It's innocent blood. It's not the blood of the one who is guilty of a crime deserving death, which there are some in the Old Testament ranging from terrible things like those who commit murder to things that surprise us, like the child who strikes his parents. These are not considered innocent blood. Lastly, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, this is the first commandment. It is harmful to chase idols. It may not seem like it in the moment, There are many people in this world today who chase after idols. Arguably, every single one of us does, but admittedly, unrepentantly, those of other faiths, those who believe in Allah, that practice what we call Islam, those who believe in the millions of gods under Hinduism, right? These are chasing after false gods to their own harm. It doesn't seem like that all the time. Many Muslims do quite well, again, in this American culture in which we live. And certainly in other places of the world where Islam, as both a religion and a state, has power. But it is the very first commandment, and to reject the Lord, the true God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, to reject him is to reject all that is good and will bring about damnation. And so it is already here, God's warning to his people, the Jews, as we might call them, the people of Judah, who are rejecting him, that if they continue in this way, if they keep chasing after these other gods, it will bring about the same end that they saw their northern kingdom, Israel, the northern sister, they saw her receive. None of those men or women that saw Israel fall are still alive by the point where Jeremiah says these words, but that doesn't make them less true. What happened to them will happen to you. Israel's downfall should have served as a warning to Judah, and instead Judah just doubles down and grows even worse as the years go by. God's promise, verse 7, is that if they repent, he will let them dwell in the promised land. He will not take them out of it. It is the land he gave of old, a long time ago, to your fathers. At this point, I mean 1400-ish, 1406 is where they first cross into the promised land, B.C., and now we're somewhere around 600 B.C. We've gone 800 years for the Israelites to live in this land. And God intended it to go much longer than that. But there are warnings even in the Pentateuch already that if they reject the Lord, he would not let them stay. He would remove them from the promised land just as he removed the tribes that were there before them. Canaanites, Amorites, Hivites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, etc. God has taken them out, and the Lord would also do the same to the Jews if they did not stay firm in their faith in him. Optionally, now, your pastor can add on a whole extra paragraph, which is another eight verses and even longer than what we've already covered. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. I guess you can see why the lectionary committee may have wanted to end on verse 7, as it ends nicely, right? If you repent, here's the good. However, the next paragraph recognizes the people won't repent. The Lord knows they won't repent, and he lets them 
have it. First, verse 8, they trust in deceptive words to no avail. That goes all the way back to Satan's work in the garden as he seeks to cast doubt on the word of God and to bring us to rebel against our Creator, believing lies instead. And you can believe all the lies you want. This world is still filled with them. But there is truth. God is truth. Jesus said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, there's lots of lies, even in so-called Christian churches on that last note. I have heard progressive Christian pastors say that to understand Jesus in John 14 is saying that you can't get to paradise except by having faith in Jesus. I've heard them say that that is a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. That's not what he meant. No one comes to the Father except through me. That seems pretty clear. But again, the devil twisting his words. Deceptive words to no avail. You can believe what you want to believe, but it doesn't mean it will end well for you. I can believe I'll live to be 200 years old. That doesn't mean I'll actually live to be 200 years old. That would be a rejection of Genesis 6, where God says that I won't live that long. But if I trust in the Lord, well, paradise, that lasts forever. That's even better than 200 years. Verse 9 is going to list off commandments that they break. So stealing, 7th commandment, murder, 5th, committing adultery, 6th, swearing falsely, we might... Go to second. We could also talk a little bit about the Eighth Commandment, about the word spoken against the neighbor in court. Offerings to Baal, first commandment. Going after other gods, first commandment. Baal, by the way, Baal, Baal, Baal. You'll hear that one pronounced a few different ways. Uh, It can be. In Hebrew, it is a word. I mean, it means Lord or Master. But it can be a reference specifically to a false god, the god of the Canaanites, a god of the sea, if I recall that correctly. But it can be a more generic reference to false gods in general as well. So there's a lot of flexibility in that word. But idol worship, definitely involved here. So they do all these things. If they break all these commands, and then they come, verse 10, and they stand before God in his house, which is called by his name, They say we are delivered only to keep doing the abominations. That's the difference. The last part is the difference because you and I do the same today. We go out and we steal and we murder, we commit adultery, we swear falsely, we chase after other gods. We do all of these wicked things. We do not keep the law of God perfectly. And then we come before him in his house called by his name and we say we are delivered. We lay our sin down at the feet of Jesus. We acknowledge that he is king and that, well, we are his people. And that he has died to forgive our sins. And we rejoice in that forgiveness. The difference is there. The difference is in the repentance because they aren't repenting. They are coming into the house saying, we're delivered. Again, the false security of thinking that simply by having the temple with them, they'll be okay when they don't actually care. And so that's the next verse. Verse 11 has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes. 
thieves who have a cave that they go to as like their home base. So they go out, they raid, they pillage, they destroy, they take, and they bring their plunder back, and they go to their cave, and they store their goods in their cave, and they hang out. And when they leave the cave again, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to go rob and pillage and plunder some more. Is that what the temple is to you? Is that what the house of God is to you? A place of rest in between your sin. Let's quote Paul here. By no means would be our Christian response. We come to the Lord's house, we repent of our sin, and we trust in his forgiveness. Is it true that we then go out and sin again? Yes. But the difference, the distinction, is that repentance happened. Their problem would be like if I came into the Lord's house for church this weekend, having committed my sins that I've committed, And I come to the Lord's Supper. And as I'm receiving Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, I am currently in my mind not thinking about forgiveness, not actually turning from my evil ways, but thinking of how I can go out and do it some more this afternoon. Repentance is the turn. So I come to the Lord's Supper saying, Lord, help me. I don't want to do it again. Or even if I do, right? We acknowledge that sometimes. My wicked heart wants to do it again. Don't let me. Help me turn. That is drastically different. Even though we go out and do it again, it's drastically different than saying, I'm okay in my sin. I can keep doing what I've been doing. No harm will befall me. And that is the path that they are on. So the Lord giving them his warning. He shows them Shiloh. Verse 12. This is the place where he had made his name dwell. That is, it is where he placed his tabernacle. It is a city located about 20 miles north of Jerusalem in the Promised Land, so making it fairly central among the people for them to come to. After Israel enters into the Promised Land for the first time under Joshua's command in 1406, and they start fighting and driving out the tribes and so forth, Somewhere in that first few years, maybe around 1400, 1399 or so, the tabernacle will be set up in Shiloh for the first time, and it will stay there for roughly 300 years. Probably a few more, hard to pinpoint exactly the day where it leaves. The book of Samuel is where it happens, that the ark will be carried out by the sons of Eli into battle, The Philistines will capture the ark and so forth. At which point, and we're never told this account in scripture, eventually though the city of Shiloh is destroyed. Again, that account can't be found in the Bible. So the Lord is simply reminding them of an event that they should be able to recognize and know that story should still be being passed down among their people and The Lord invites them to go and visit and see what the place looks like now. And that if they keep on doing the evils that the northern kingdom did, they are going to end up the same. It doesn't matter that God's house is there. If they are not God's people, that house does them no good. If you do not 
believe in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness he offers on the cross does you no good. He forgave the sins of the entire world, and yet there are those who still perish. There are those who still will go to hell by their own choice, just as these will go into exile in Babylon by their own choice. The door of repentance is right there in front of them, and they will not pass through. So, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called, you did not answer. So that's the conversation up to this point. I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, to the place I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. The temple of God will be destroyed. 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, will destroy it. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, the offspring of Ephraim, referring to the whole of the northern kingdom of Israel, as Ephraim sometimes does in usage in the Old Testament. A couple other passing thoughts here. The den of robbers phrase may have sounded familiar. Jesus uses it in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 21, 13, Mark eleven seventeen, and Luke 19, verse 46. And then... Also, the idea that God calls a place by his name, that he makes himself to dwell there, he places his promises there, has a great connection to you and to me as God does that to us in baptism. You are marked as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. He has made his name dwell on you and in you. Christ is with us. Our epistle text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 52, again with the option of adding on verses 53 through 58. And this is part of what we call the resurrection chapter. We've been studying this one together for the last few weeks in this year C epiphany season. And it is, again, a favorite chapter for a lot of Christians, and for good reason such profound conversation about the resurrection, about our hope as Christians and what is to come. This text is going to be prominent in Lutheran funerals. I don't know statistically, but I would guess maybe even the majority of funerals will have this passage read at some point, as pastors will often read some scripture with the family and pray with them before the family enters the church for the service then you have the readings during the service, and then you also have readings at the graveside for the committal. And this just fits so well uh, in, in those three spots. So it would be hard to find a funeral where 1 Corinthians 15 isn't used by a pastor with a family in some way. This is our hope. And so before we jump in, because it begins, so it is, with the resurrection, so it is, that's a comparison what are we comparing to? Well, we're comparing to, in the verses leading up to this, the idea of seeds or kernels that are planted, that are sown, and they die in the ground. But then, because they have died in the ground, they bring forth something new. Jesus speaks that way about the grain of mustard seed, for example. So here we go. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is 
imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We could spend days in something like this. The resurrection of the dead. You and me. Actually, all people will be raised from the dead. This is true. On the last day at the judgment call, every person, man, woman, child, Christian, non-Christian, will be raised and brought before the judgment throne of God. But for the Christian, it's a different outcome. Thanks be to God for his gift, for his mercy, for his grace. So we will be raised, and this is both body and soul. Many Christians today struggle to believe that, just as the Corinthians would have struggled to believe it back then. Many Christians have the idea that the body is of no use. The body isn't raised, the body stays in the ground, that we don't need it anymore, that we just become spiritual beings even angels, that's out there in Christianity too. That's not the promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is that your body will be raised from the dead. It won't look exactly the same, but your body will be raised from the dead. Now to talk about that for a moment, we die because we sin, and at death the body and soul are ripped apart from each other. That's all the detail I know. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how painful that actually must be in that moment. But we're ripped in two. The body is placed in the ground. Sown, if you want to phrase it that way. And the soul is somehow at rest with Christ. He cares for it. Again, somehow. The Bible is not clear on that matter. The time in between is not the focus. The time of paradise is the focus. Because that's where we'll dwell forever. So lots of questions actually hover around out there about the in-between time, in-between death and the last day. And we can guess, but we don't have much to truly answer with confidence. Other than the little bit I've just shared. Body and soul separated, body in the ground, soul with Jesus. What that even looks like, we don't know. But on the last day, when Christ returns, the resurrection of the dead, your body raised from the dead, put back together again, no matter how it's been destroyed, and your soul and your body reunited. Your body is not of no use. Your body is not worthless. This is why the Christian church has always preferred the burial of the saint. Because... It shows that the body means something. It shows the body matters and it cares. It seeks to care for that body even in death. We lay that body gently to rest. 
knowing that the Lord will raise it again. So now we get this list from Paul. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. We'll go with sown, raised, sown, raised several times. Perishable, that means it can die. Obviously. Imperishable cannot die. This is what we confess about Jesus Christ. That he died, but that he is risen again and death has no more dominion over him. It cannot, cannot harm him. When we are raised, we will never die again. Thanks be to God. Imperishable, not capable of death. Sown in dishonor, it's going to be a reference to sin and brokenness. I'm ugly in many ways. Dishonor. However, raised in glory. To be glorified is to be worthy of being looked at. We will be so impressive, not by our own doing, but by God's beauty of creation and new creation, that we will share in his glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Those who are weak are incapable. I cannot save myself. I cannot help myself. I can't even do the basic things I tell people I'll do. But we'll be raised in power. By God's power. And then we will be given power, that is the ability, to do what the Lord gives us to do in paradise. I view it very much Garden of Eden-like, where we'll be caring for this new creation, because God making a new heaven and a new earth. If we were just going to hang out with him in heaven forever, why would he be making a new earth? I don't know what it'll look like for sure, but it, it seems fitting. So natural raised spiritual. I'm going to pause on that one because note the next phrase. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And Jesus is described in the upcoming verses as spiritual. So it's not, it's not that we're looking at physical body versus then like floating soul in the clouds. There's something more to this. Natural versus spiritual seems to be the orientation of the man, that the man that is natural, like the first Adam became a living being, oriented to this world. Spiritual oriented towards God. Because if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual. It's not that we're only the one. If you really want to take this as a physical body and your soul, then there's still both. It's not that your soul is raised and your body isn't. There's a body that the Lord has given to you and that body will also be directed towards him. It is a bit of an interesting verse and hard to, hard to really wrap our minds fully around because again, we don't know the fullness of this promise. But one does not have to fully grasp a promise for the promise to be kept. God's faithfulness does not depend on me understanding it. Thanks be to God for that. 
So the first man, a reference to Adam, Genesis chapter 2, the word Adam in Hebrew does simply mean man, so the first man is named man. The last Adam, a reference to Jesus. Paul have conversations about this elsewhere as he writes too. The book of Romans is a good example. The first man was from the earth of dust. The second man's from heaven. Adam was made from the dust of the earth, quite literally. And Jesus, the second man, the last man, came from heaven. Okay, following. So as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That would be us. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And that again is us, because we are of Christ. We have both. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, is that a physical depiction of some kind? Or are we going back to the image of God from Genesis 1 and 2 and an image that is functional by its very nature? To say that God made us in his image is to say he shared his creative function with us. It's hard to say. Again, there's beauty to this, but there's also some mystery to it yet, and Paul will use that word mystery in the upcoming paragraph. So let's keep going. This will also, again, if your pastor's taking the shorter version of the text this weekend, this paragraph will be the end. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, I can see why somebody might read this text and think that the body is not raised. I mean, the word raised gets used so many times, but flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Take this reference instead to be the idea that the sinner cannot come into the kingdom. I cannot force my way in. I cannot do it. It must be given. The perishable does not get to inherit the imperishable. If the perishable is going to perish, when the perishable dies, they would lose it anyway. We must be changed so that we can live forever. I tell you a mystery. What a beautiful phrase. A mystery being made known to us. That's the whole thing about epiphany too, right? Again, the word of God, the good news of his salvation made known to the Gentiles. That's what the word epiphanos, revelation, means. Made known, lighted upon, quite literally, in the Greek. We shall not all sleep, that is, die, but we shall all be changed. Even those who live in this world at the very moment Jesus returns, which could be today, could be tomorrow, could still be a hundred years, a thousand years from now, I don't know. We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus told us that very firmly. But when Christ returns, there will be people here yet alive. Those who believe and those who don't as well. And they will not well, I can't say that. The ones who believe will never taste death. And that's something. 
That's a thing of glory and beauty, and it's why we pray for Christ to return. It's why I teach those um, of my parish who are who are sick, who are dreading what is coming, who who pray to die. Right? You get the person who's been stuck in uh, a bed for months on end. They just want to die. They just want it to end. I teach them not to pray for death. I teach them to pray for Christ to return. Hold him to his promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. The words of the book of Revelation, very last chapter of Scripture, is Christ, I believe, three times in that chapter, says that promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the Christian's prayer. When that happens, whether you've died already or not, we will all be changed. This perishable body that is this body that can die no longer. In the twinkling of an eye, it will be instantaneous. These bodies will become what they will be forever. Body and soul reunited for those who have been separated in death. But we will be made new. No longer broken, no longer perishing, but whole and glorified because Christ is glorified. All right, this brings us to the the continued text, starting in verse 53. I'll do it in, let's do it in two sections. Let's do 53 to 55, get the Old Testament quotes in first. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Here's your counterpoint to those who think that there is no resurrection of the body. The perishable body must put on the imperishable. So there is a glorified body. We don't know what it will look like. But this perishable body, this broken one that I am, not that just that I inhabit, don't speak that way. We're not Gnostics that think the body is evil and the soul is good. Body and soul are together. This broken body that I am, it will live on. It will put on the imperishable somehow. I don't know what the change is going to bring and look like. I can't tell you what age you'll be in paradise. I cannot tell you if your scars will remain or go away. We just don't know. But we know the body is raised, and we know it no longer can die. We know sin no longer has any power over it. We know suffering is no more. There are promises. There are glimpses. And we hold fast to these promises and words of Jesus Christ our Lord who has redeemed us and made us his own. The mortal body that is, again, capable of death must put on immortality. you got to keep the T's in there. Moral, immoral, doesn't work. Mortal, immortal. So, I mean, we would almost take those phrases synonymously to each other. Perishable and mortal versus imperishable, immortal. When this happens, when the resurrection happens, what comes? Two Old Testament quotes. Isaiah 25, 8, death is swallowed up in victory. 
as we'll see in verse 57, that is Jesus. And Jesus has swallowed up death. The grave could not hold him. He broke forth from that tomb. The last enemy to be, to be defeated is death. And on the last day, Jesus will swallow it up forever. And death will have no more power over the saints. Then he quotes Hosea 13, verse 14, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The word sting in the Greek could also be translated sharp point or goad. I mean, we think of a sting, we think of like a, a bee or a wasp stinging us. A goad is a stronger picture. A goad is a, a tool. You think of a, a long stick with a point on the end of it that is used to drive your livestock. So the oxen plowing a field is an example of that, that you're prodding it along, you're forcing it along to go. Death is pictured here then as the driver pushing us along. Where's the goat? By what can you push us anymore? That's the taunt of Paul here in the text because they can't. Death cannot, it will not have any power of, over us anymore. The sting of death is sin. So sin is the goad that pushes us along right into the open tomb. I mean, that's the way to picture this, right? The law, the power of sin is the law. So picture the law of God as the driver who has the ox goad in his hand, and you're the ox. The ox goad is our sin. So the law is pushing us towards the grave because every time we hear the law, we're reminded of our sin. Every time, we, every time we hear the law, we groan and we grieve over the depth of our sin and we recognize and realize our depravity and our, our impending doom. It's not that Jesus does away with the law. He said that himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. But the goad is taken away. Because you and I are no longer sinners. When we are raised on the last day, sin is gone. Well, we're still sinners now. Simul justus et peccator simultaneously, at the same time, saint and sinner, or justified and sinner. But... On the last day when Christ returns, sin is gone. Sin is done away with. Sin is defeated. It has no more power over us. We no longer sin in paradise. And so the law, it's still there. Because the law of God is good and wise. This is the title of one of our hymns in the hymnal. The law of God is good. Right? I mean, you will not murder in paradise. Thanks be to God. I will not steal from my neighbor in paradise. Thanks be to God. The law of God won't go away. But we won't be sinners anymore. We won't even be tempted to break the law anymore. Because the old Adam will finally be fully drowned in each of us. The world will no longer be broken and cause us to be tempted. And the devil will no longer have any access to the saints. Cut off forever thrown down. Good stuff. All right, so verses 56 to 58, we already covered 56, but I didn't quite read it. 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End of chapter. And Paul will continue with final thoughts and closing remarks in chapter 16. So we've covered verse 56, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus. What more do we need to say, right? Uh, Straightforward. Our victory is in Christ. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered the devil and he's done it for you. He's done it for me. Thanks be to God. His death on the cross conquered sin and the devil. And his resurrection conquered death. He is victorious and he shares that with us. And so, verse 58, Paul calls on us to be steadfast. It looks very much like, I think, the English phrase, stand firm. That might be a good way to think of it. And that's the immovable word as well. Stay in your faith. Stay in the promise. It doesn't mean literally don't move. But be immovable from what you believe. Do not allow the devil to shift your faith. Do not allow the world to shift your faith. Do not allow your own sinful nature to shift your faith. Stand firm, steadfast. And then this is Ephesians 2.10, where Paul tells us that God has prepared good works for us, that we might walk in them. Keep doing the good works. Keep doing what the Lord has given you to do. Love God. Love your neighbor. Spend your days working because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It may feel like it. I won't say it won't. It may feel like you're just beating your head against the wall day after day. But the Lord is working through his people. Just as he worked through Paul. Just as he worked through everybody. Whoever shared the faith with you. The person who shared the faith with them. It's hard to know how the Lord is working through you. You don't have the ability to create faith in another person. The Spirit has to do that. You are called to share the word through which the Spirit works. So speak of Christ. Speak of his law and his gospel. Call people to repent. Show them the beauty of the forgiveness that's in Christ. To some, to use other language of Paul here, to some you will be a sweet aroma. To others you will be the aroma of death. Some will listen, some will repent, some will not, some will foment with anger. So, we don't have control over that. I know, we're told to be winsome and whatnot in our evangelism by most evangelism programs and things, but just love your neighbor serve your neighbor, and speak of God to them. And let the Lord do his thing through his word. And it's not in vain. The Lord's at work. As we read through our text from Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 49, it will sound strikingly similar to the Sermon on the Mount Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, well, 6 and 7, too, 
And the text that has led up to this over the last few weeks has also sounded much like the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 7 is probably your parallel chapter to take a look at for Luke 6. Well, these verses for us this weekend will begin. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's hard to say here, verse 39, he told them a parable. What all of the words that follow should be considered the parable? It's Honestly, it might just be the first line after that. The rest of verse 39, the parable may end there. And verse 40 could easily be the one-sentence explanation of the parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? I mean, as we think about that question, I guess the answer is yes. You could picture one blind man holding the hand of another and, and trying to show him the way, but what's going to happen And Jesus' description here is they'll both fall into the pit. I mean, you already have one blind man who's headed for the pit. If he leads another one, he's just going to lead that guy the same place he's going. What's the warning here? Uh, don't trust the Pharisees. They're blind men headed towards the pit. If you let them lead you, they'll lead you to the same place. Judas Iscariot, he experienced that. I do think verse 40 connects and can be partly its explanation, right? The, the blind man being led by the blind man isn't going to end up in a better place. The disciple is not above his teacher. Whoever is training you, whoever you are learning from and listening to, it's not that you're going to exceed them and be better than them. You will learn from them. You will learn to follow them. You will learn to go where they go. You will be like them. So if you're following a blind man, you'll be like the blind man. If you're following him into a pit, you're going to follow him into the pit. You'll be in the pit. The man is not above his teacher. The disciple not above his teacher. And that's a reference then also for the disciples of Jesus to recognize. Jesus uses it that way as he preaches and teaches in Matthew's gospel. The idea that as the teacher then suffers, so will his disciples. But we should not expect a different outcome. That you'd find in Matthew 10. Then Jesus gets into what is the start of Matthew 7, the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you have a log in your own. We are to look at our own sin. We are to recognize the depth of our own sin and just what it is doing to us, and this is a call to repent. Take the log out of your own eye. I recognize something there. What would it to you if you had something hit you so hard, a log or a beam hit you so hard that it was impaled into your eye, what outcome would that have for you? I think we could quite easily say it would kill us. 
right? To get hit that hard in the head. And if somehow it didn't, in the process of removing that log from the eye, probably would. We are dead in our sins. I am not good. I'm not a generally good person. I'm a sinner, and I was dead in my trespasses, Ephesians 2. But God has made me alive again. So repent. That's the call here. Repent of our sin. Turn. Go back to the blind man leading the blind man. To repent is to turn away. Don't follow him anymore. Don't go where he's going. Then, once you've repented, note verse, well, the end of verse 42, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is not saying don't judge. Even Matthew 7 doesn't actually say it that way. Not the way the culture wants it said. Do not act like a hypocrite judging others when you don't yourself repent. But once you've repented, your neighbor needs help. Help them. Show them their sin. Call them to repent too. And if your neighbor is a faithful person, right, if if my neighbor comes to me and tells me how I have wronged him, I pray the Lord has made me a, a man who can confess that sin, repent, and ask forgiveness. The Holy Spirit is the one who works repentance in any of us. So we repent, and then we can see clearly via scripture, because we're trusting in God's word, how best to help our neighbor and speak God's word to them. Verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And that last part, that's where we want to come back to. But first, in verse 44's picture is quite easy. right? You're not going to, to use other language, you're not going to go to a, a banana tree looking for apples. And you're not going to go to an apple tree looking for oranges. An apple tree produces apples. A fig tree produces figs. If you want a grape, you need to go to the vine. So it is with good trees and bad trees. Good trees will bear good fruit, bad trees, bad fruit. We think of all fruit as being good, but some fruit is rotten, isn't it? There are some things that grow on trees you should not eat. Jesus takes it away from the tree language, though, and goes to treasure. A good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, whereas the evil, out of evil treasure, produces evil. It's the last phrase, out of the abundance of his heart, of the heart, his mouth speaks. Whatever your heart is filled with, that's what you have to share. I, I can't encourage you enough as a pastor in this. I mean, just read this verse. 
And if you just read this verse, what do you want to put in yourself? What do you want to fill your heart with? Fill it with good. Fill it with good stuff, because then what will come out of it is good stuff. If you do nothing but spend your day filling your heart with the things of this world by listening to social media and the news and whatever your favorite shows are, right? the average American teenager spends 10 hours a day, not school-related, 10 hours a day on screens. I'm guessing that's not Lutheran Hour Ministry Bible studies, daily devotions. If what we fill ourselves with is the stuff of the world, then when we go and we talk to our neighbor, we will talk to them about stuff of the world. But if we are filled with the things of God, then when we go and talk to our neighbor, we will share with them the things of God. It's really not that hard. If you spend your weekend watching college football on Saturday and NFL football on Sunday, what are you most likely to talk about on Monday? You're most likely to talk about football, and that's not saying there's anything wrong with football. It's just a recognition. What are we here for? Am I here to entertain myself? Am I here to have fun? I'm not even saying fun is wrong, but that's not the goal. We're here to love God and love our neighbor. So let us. Verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Talk about nonsense. If you're going to call him Lord, Master, King, then ought you do what he says? If you're not going to do what he says, why do you think he's your Lord? Right? It's oxymoronic. It might be the right phrase there. If Jesus is our Lord, we should follow him. We should treat him as such. We should look to him as such. And so fill ourselves with Christ and bear good fruit. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. So we hear what Jesus teaches. We live that life of repentance confession and absolution, and then also of loving our neighbor. I mean, look back at the first paragraph here. Take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's. Right? Repent, confessing our sins, trusting in Christ's forgiveness, and then going out and loving others. That man, verse 48, and this is an easy picture, the man who builds his house on the firm foundation. The firm foundation is Jesus Christ and his word, very much so from what he's just said. His house cannot be destroyed. What he builds will endure. That's the end of the epistle reading. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
And so when the world attacks it, it will stand. Even if it looks like it fell. Because right? the world will think that they have killed the Christian. And many times they do. Martyrs. The real thing. But even then, your faith still stood. Even then, your work still stood. And you're in paradise with Jesus forevermore. And the people that you had labored in, many of them heard that word. They saw your faith. They saw your willingness to endure the attack of the world and not recant and not give it up. And that bolstered their faith too. The opposite though, the man who hears the word of Jesus and does not do it is like the one building his house without a foundation. Matthew's account uses the idea of sand. This is just ground, but it's a deserty place. Sand is an expectation of ground in a lot of that area. Dirt in some places, yes, but sand in others. When the stream broke against it, it fell didn't have a foundation, didn't have anything to stand on. When the ground below it is a moving target, the house cannot hold. And so when we claim to be Christians, but we love the world, and we fill ourselves with the world, when difficulty comes, and this is the parable of the sower, it's the seed cast among the thorns that the faith starts to grow, but it gets choked out by the cares of this world. Or on the rocky soil, it has no depth. It springs up quickly, but when the sun comes and scorches it, persecution comes. It doesn't endure. It falls. And the ruin of that house was great. Great as in large, catastrophic, not great as in very good. I mean, we're talking about hell. And this is the way that also then that the Sermon on the Mount ended in Matthew 7, three chapters of Jesus preaching and teaching, and he ends his sermon with a strong word of law, and he does it here in Luke 6 as well. Uh, right after this, he's going to head off to Capernaum. This is the end of this section of Jesus teaching for Luke as he writes also.